Good morning, listeners. Today we have a guest I'm very excited to have on the program. I actually applied one of his ideas to prepare for my and my wife's wedding. We did a pre-mortem on our wedding planning. Audience, I'd like you to meet Dr. Gary Klein, CEO of Shadowbox Training, LLC. Good morning, Gary. Good evening. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, evening for you, morning for us, which means all listeners are fine. They're covered both ways. <laughs> Good morning, Great. Tim. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us, both of you. It's, uh, um, I feel very privileged to be in the room. I'm excited to see what we uh, get into. Gary, I have a friend who got his PhD in decision science. So the first way I found out about you was how excited he got the beginning of his PhD, discovering that you know you were the person who basically pioneered naturalistic decision making, and you know it was him that bugged me endlessly. Ask Gary to be on the podcast. Ask Gary to be on the podcast. And of course, I'd already read bits and pieces of your work. Do you want to start with why you went down the path of investigating naturalistic decision making? Is it sort of the first point where you really realized you were on a path that was going to be you know, new and sort of your thing for your, your professional career? Let's start there. And I'll just, I hate to puncture your, your enthusiasm here, but it was no, nowhere near as rational as you're describing. I, I had no intention of starting a movement. <laughs> I just like giving people the opportunity to be fabulous. If I don't take it, that means they've just got a nice sense of humbleness. <laughs> So um, where it started was simply curiosity. I wondered how people could make good decisions under extreme time pressure and uncertainty. And there were standard decision models, and I assumed that they were accurate. I, was, I bought into all of that, uh, set up a decision matrix, look at all the options, look at all the, the evaluation criteria. It all made sense to me, except I didn't see how you could do it under time pressure and with lots of uncertainty. I recount all this in my first book, Sources of Power. And so I decided I wanted to investigate it. And an opportunity arose from the Army. The Army wanted to find out how do people make life and death decisions under extreme time pressure and uncertainty. And I said, this looks like something I could get into. It looks like it might be a chance for me. And I assume most of the people who responded to that request for proposals use a standard approach. They took uh, laboratory tasks and they varied the time pressure and varied the uncertainty and they had a variety of hypotheses. But I didn't want to do that kind of research because I felt we had to study decision-making outside of the lab because my background, I have no background in decision-making, zero. I never took a course in it. And so that was a disadvantage in some ways, but it was a great advantage in other ways because I wasn't really blinded by what the field was doing. My background was in expertise and trying to understand how people get very, very good. So I said, let's, let's study some people who are really very good and pick firefighters for no particular reason other than I felt 
that they were very good and they did have to make life and death decisions under extreme time pressure with lots of uncertainty. And there was a lot of time when they weren't fighting fires when they could talk to us and they, they might tolerate our presence. So I selected firefighters and it was a very fortunate choice. They're a wonderful community to work with. And I had an idea that people wouldn't ordinarily compare lots and lots of options if you're at the scene of a fire, they just compare maybe two options. I, I had some theoretical basis for, for speculating about that. And I thought that was a daring hypothesis. And then I started to, we, we started to study them. And I remember the first interview I did with a firefighter. He was a, a captain. He had uh, 16 years of experience, 12 of them as a, as a, as, as a, as, as a captain, a commander. And I said, I want to study how you make tough decisions. And he looked at me and he shook his head sadly. And he said, I have all this time as a firefighter. I don't think I've, I've ever made a single decision. And, and, and we had gotten funded, by the way. We had gotten funded to study firefighters. And here, the first person I'm interviewing says he's never made a decision in his career. And I could see everything falling to pieces and uh, everything was falling apart. And, and I said, well, how do you know what to do? And he said, well, it's just procedures. You just follow the procedures. And so I saw this whole project. We had a six-month project, and the, from the very first interview, we were we were going to be we were collapsing. I was collapsing, and I said, "Okay, but before I leave, um, <laughs> can I see the procedure manual? Because maybe there was something in the manual I could use to figure out what was going on." And he looked at me again sadly, and he said, "Oh, uh, it's not written down. You just know." And I thought, okay, well, maybe there is something here. Maybe I was giving up too quickly. And so I started studying and, and we did over a, a couple of dozen interviews with these experienced commanders. And we found that what I thought was a daring hypothesis that they didn't look at lots of options. They only looked at two. That was too conservative. They didn't look at two. They just considered one most of the time. And what was going on is... They could use their experience to size up situations, and within a few seconds, they would generally know what to do. And so that was their intuition coming into play. That was part of their decision-making, but it wasn't just intuition. The intuition wasn't just magical. It was based on uh, a decade, two decades of experience where they built up a repertoire of patterns and so they could quickly, using pattern matching, they could quickly identify what the situation was calling for, what goals to pursue, what uh, cues to, 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 to be uh, monitoring most carefully, what to expect next, and what to do in this situation. So that was the intuitive part. But there was more to it than just intuition, because how do you evaluate an option except by comparing it to others? And these people were telling us they weren't comparing any options. They were only, almost all the time, just going with their first option. So how do you evaluate that? So we looked at our interview protocols, and we were doing like two-hour interviews with them on their toughest cases. And we looked through our interview notes, and we found the way they were evaluating the option wasn't by comparing it to any others. 
which is what I had expected. It was by imagining it, imagining it in a context and seeing if it would work. And if it worked, then they carried it out. And so they were, they were acting within, within seconds, less than a minute. If it almost worked, they could improve it. They could modify it. And if they couldn't figure out a way to modify it, then they would say, okay, forget that. What else can I do? Until they came to, to an option that they felt was workable. And so based on that study, we came up with a model of naturalistic decision-making. We call it a, a recognition prime decision model because it's based on recognition, it's based on intuition, but there, it's a combination of intuition plus analysis. This, this imagining part, we call it mental simulation. That's the, the conscious, deliberate, analytical part. And that got us started to studying cognitive phenomena outside the laboratory, studying it in messy situations that horrify most laboratory scientists. Ambiguous situations where there's no right answer, it involves team coordination, involves organizational constraints, it involves high stakes, you can't do that in a laboratory, and it involves the use of experience. And most laboratory studies do not allow for experience. And the reason is to get significant results, statistically significant results, you want to reduce the variability. And if you use a task that people are familiar with, which people are familiar, some people will have more experience than others. And now you have variability. So to cut down that variability that's going to interfere with your statistical uh, findings. You make sure everybody has the same exact amount of experience. And the only way to do that is to give people a task that they've never seen before. So everybody starts at zero. And I remember one laboratory researcher telling me, oh, but I give my, I give my subjects lots of practice. I give them 10 hours of practice. And I thought, 10 hours for you, the people I study have 20 years. That's not even comparable. So that's how I got started down this road of naturalistic decision-making because that seemed to be the only appropriate way to respect people's experience and to see how their experience allow them to carry out complex cognitive activities such as decision-making. It's so interesting listening to you describe that because as you were talking, I was thinking about why, despite having studied so much philosophy, why in the end I don't teach it, <laughs> why I walked away from it. Because at a certain point, people <laughs> just keep diving into their abstractions and end up in a world of reification. And I think my point of having a similar realization to you of the importance of experiences. I was doing some work for one of Australia's special operations unit, just teaching them different ways to think and, and plan and different ways to challenge their assumptions and biases. And one of the majors made a wonderful comment. He said, you should see this lot when they get back from their holidays and they tell me about all the disasters in planning. And they hang on, these are highly, highly organised people at work where all their experience is. But the minute they go into planning their holidays for them and their families, it turns into the normal disasters like everyone else, of not leaving enough time, not getting somewhere on time, not organising the connection, and seeing that power of experience and the power of the underlying idea of the more you use processes consciously for a while, 
in sort of David Eagleman's terms, eventually you burn those processes down into your unconscious. And instead of having to think about them, you just get the answers. You know, so the, the classic example for me is I still remember being a little kid and learning to use a white cane where every step was conscious, everything the cane hit, I had to think about the feedback. Now I have to remember to pay attention to it because after so long it's burned so deep into my unconscious, it gets me where I need to go, I get there safely, but I couldn't tell you whether the cane's in my hand, I know it's there, but what it's doing becomes such (laughs) an experiential thing. And I sort of got so used to it being my normal thing, I don't think I really understood that other people were as reliant on process and used it as much until the sort of special operations moment of going, okay, experts at work, but that doesn't mean it translates to any other environment. I read a great acronym the other day and it was WEIRD. It was it Western Industrialized Educated Rich and Democratic? And it was making the point that when people are being you know, participants in university experiments, they all normally fit the weird category. <laughs> you know, they're such a narrowly defined group of people and they're normally 18 to 20 and very little experience. And as you said, at most given 10 hours to practice something. But more importantly, even if they're given that 10 hours to practice in the lab and that practice doesn't really matter because they don't want to be there. They're not investing in it. They've not committed to learning. So sort of in someone like Anders Ericsson's perspective, you know, his book Peak, they've not really committed to becoming an expert. When you interviewed the firefighters, I would take it, well, I would imagine they're a very committed group of people that from day one, you don't sign up for that job unless you're really committed to being a part of that and taking on the responsibility and being responsible for other people's safety. Have you found that that level of motivation to sort of do good and look after other people does it grow expertise faster? Does it grow better decision-making faster? I think it does. I mean, clearly it's a tremendous responsibility. And there are people who are in the fire service who don't want command responsibility. I mean, they're a wonderful group. They are okay with taking risks and they do take tremendous risks. I mean, a building is on fire. The building's on fire and I'm in the building. I'm going out. These people are going into the building. They're putting themselves at risk. They're trying to help people. They're trying to, you know, resuscitate people who are overcome by smoke, exhausted by by by, by the strain of the situation. So th- these are e- extremely supportive people and extremely, you know, open-hearted people. But it takes something else to say, I'm going to be a commander. I'm going to decide whether we send somebody out on, onto the roof to section the roof, which is a very risky thing to do. I'm going to decide whether we send people into a building that, that might collapse or not, or whether to withdraw them if I, if, if I think the situations are uh, too, too hazardous. And so the, the commanders are looking to bolster their skill bolster their decision making and they're 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 very open to to finding ways to do the job better and they 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 do af- they have after action reviews uh, particularly when when things haven't gone as well as possible so you 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 see them trying to trying to learn as much as they can but every situation is different 
And so you can't make it as automatic as as you described with your cane. It's it, no, it, there's it, always it doesn't wiggle re- room. reach yeah. that level of automaticity. Mm. Yeah, and that's, and that's why they they know that they can't trust their initial uh, size up. That they they need to double check themselves. And I remember one commander thought he knew what was happening. It was a, they were called to the scene of a fire. It was like a four-story building. They get there. They, they see that the fire is in a laundry chute, wooden laundry chute. And he tells his crew, go up to the second floor and start uh, with your hoses and, and, and get uh, on top of the fire. And they contact him. The fire is past us. And that surprises him. Because when he came to the building, he didn't see any sign that the fire had had spread. He leaves his station. He walks out of the building. He walks to the front of the building. Now he sees smoke coming out from under the eaves. And he realizes the fire, while he was walking in, the fire had already spread up to the fourth floor and is coming down the hall. He's lost the building. Now he has to do search and rescue. So that's somebody who just sort of locks into an initial impression. That's somebody who, as soon as he encounters some anomaly, something that was unexpected, is prepared to rethink. So it's a wonderful combination of sort of openness and skepticism, almost in equal measure, isn't it? Be open to learn, but always be skeptical that what worked well yesterday is a good starting point, but don't be cocky about it because there's bound to be something about today that's sufficiently different enough to need revision and improvement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when we when we study these people, we want we want to study primarily those who've been identified as experts. And there's a variety of criteria for who's an expert. And and it turns out there is no gold standard. There's no simple way to decide who's an expert. It's not number of years of experience. There are some people who have lots of experience, but but they're not learning from, from all their experiences the way other people might be. But one of the criteria that sticks out for me is I'll ask somebody, tell me about your last mistake. And the people who I believe are experts have no difficulty telling me their last mistake because it's still burning on at burning them it's still eating at them yeah. and they're still mulling over what they could have done differently and there are other people who'll say hmm i can't think of any mistakes and they're the ones you worry and about following that, <laughs> that that's not the person that 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 i want to put much faith in they may be proficient they may know all the procedures but they don't have the same rage for mastery that you were describing before. Yeah. Part of what I teach in my complex problem-solving course at Adelaide Uni is some of Carl Weeks's stuff on high-reliability organisations. And some of that literature goes down very much the same point that you know, for HRO really to work, everyone there has to, to some varying degree, want to keep getting better and want to keep you know, acknowledging well, that wasn't as good as it could be. That could be a problem. We should deal with that before it is a problem you know, and keep being open. And it's a lot to ask of a whole group of people. It's hard enough to get people in charge to have that view, but then to encourage that open culture in the people below them becomes an even more difficult proposition. Exactly. Very much so. Is this part of the reason why you develop the pre-mortem because in a fire crew or on an aircraft carrier or in an emergency 
room, motivated people who want to learn and keep growing choose those careers. But often in a conventional corporate setting, people want their expertise in a reliable environment where yesterday, today and tomorrow are all very similar so that their expertise keeps getting them praise and a bigger paycheck. Was the pre-mortem really a way to get people in comfortable environments to switch on to the potential mistakes that could happen? Or was it again just an observation that a lot of planning goes horribly wrong? Once again, I think you're giving me far too much credit. Okay. So here's how the pre-mortem started. And by the way, uh, the, pre- the idea of a pre-mortem is instead of doing a post-mortem after a project goes poorly, and, and like a post-mortem is, is usually thought of in, in a medical setting where a patient dies and you do a post-mortem, and that way the physician finds out why the patient died. So it's useful for the physician to get that feedback, and the physician can give the, the feedback to the family, so the family is, is now uh, not satisfied, but they're enlightened about what happened. And, and if it's an interesting case, it could be written up so the community can learn. Everybody benefits from a post-mortem except for the patient, because the patient is dead. Mm. And so I had a research company, and we would do after-action reviews and post-mortems after projects didn't go as well as we wanted. And we said, why don't we do some of this up front? Why don't we try to anticipate some of these problems rather than just stumble into all these traps? So we added, so the way a pre-mortem goes is at the end of a kickoff meeting, that's usually where it's done. We'll take 20 minutes, no more than 30 minutes, and we'll say, now we've all been through the, the, the plan. We're all ready to start the project. We know what uh, everybody, everybody knows his or her roles. Now, now we do the pre-mortem and we lean back in your chairs. Just relax now. And imagine I'm looking in a crystal ball and it's now three months from now, six months from now. Pick a time frame. And, oh my gosh, what I see in the crystal ball is horrible. It shows that this plan, this project failed. It completely failed. It was a fiasco. We know it was a fiasco. No doubt about that. Now, each of you around the table, each of you part of the team, take the next two minutes and write down all the reasons why the plan failed. And people do that. Mm. And then we, after the two minutes are up, I go around the room and I gather what their reasons were. And um, it's amazing the things that that come out, the things that people articulate. And we've done a study. It's far more effective than just saying the usual approach at the end of of of, of a kickoff meeting is a simple critique. Anybody see any problems? And it takes a brave person to voice problems after the, the team has just spent the last few hours uh, detailing the plan and getting ready. So the whole incentive and a critique is not to rock the boat, not to disturb the harmony of the team. Premortem stands that on its head. Premortem says the plan has failed. There's no doubt about it. Show us how smart you are by the kinds of problems you can identify. <laughs> and people respond they compete with each other yeah you get them competing to improve it by acknowledging them so last year when tim did complex problem solving Mm -hmm. uh, my pre-mortem for the class last year was okay you're the organizing committee for the 2020 tokyo olympics Mm -hmm. 
we're one week before the Olympics and it's just being called off. You know, why? <laughs> and then get in your groups and there's these little groups and, you know, then get it from all the things that could go wrong, including, you know, Godzilla appearing. That's always a fun <laughs> one when you do the Tokyo Olympics. Was to then go, well, okay, which ones are under human control? Now, you know, what are all the reasons why that thing could go wrong? And get them to a list of 20 or 30 things, each of which was under human control and small enough to start planning for. And it was lots. It's, it's always fun to do with a class, you know, because they mm-hmm. they they just so open to the idea. This is not about me failing. This is about all of us together seeing any flaws and then making sure the whole thing doesn't fail. As I said in the intro, you know, my wife and I did a pre mortem on our wedding. It, it seemed the best plan. What are all the things that can go wrong on this day? What are all the reasons why? Okay, well, we're likely to be married at the end. Of it, but what are all the reasons why? You know. There could be you know, someone's upset, something goes wrong, something didn't get finished, something was late. And, you know, it meant we changed the plan to have everyone in one place from the beginning to end, different approach to catering, different approach to all sorts of things to reduce the numbers oh, of things okay. that could go wrong. <laughs> and by the end of the day, oh. I don't want to sound egotistical, but it's about the only wedding I've been to where <laughs> nothing went weird <laughs> okay well we have a, we have a, a wonderful testimonial here yeah, yeah. so anyway so we're, that's where the pre-mortem started we used it in my own company and then we we started using it and demonstrating it to our sponsors who at first were uncomfortable they didn't want anything that might yeah. reduce people's confidence and we said, this is the way we do things. And, and, and they saw for themselves that they were uncovering important potential uh, problems. And then people started to ask us, can you do a pre-mortem for us, uh, 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 a separate project? Can you come in and sort of consult with us and do pre-mortems? And oddly enough, this idea of a pre-mortem is probably better known than my recognition prime decision model. And all kinds of people are using it in all kinds of domains. And now I'll have to add wedding Wedding planning planning. to to the list. And I just did a podcast last week. I was in New York to do a podcast about how to use premortems effectively on Wall Street. So the premortem has taken off in ways that we never expected. That's why I, I don't want to take any credit that, that, that we had an idea of how we were going to reform the planning process. Yeah. We just started it ourselves and it, it grew from there. Had a kernel of an idea that just snowballed. Yes, yes. I'm just wondering, Gary, why you kind of limit yourself to 20 or 30 minutes? Is that just because it becomes a bit too ridiculous? That's just kind of the marker that you found has allowed you to get the most out of it without taking up too much time? Well, we're always nervous about taking up too much time because people's time is very valuable. So we want to make this seem doable. We, we don't want it to be too much of a burden. And we also want to keep the energy level up. If you have an hour, then people are, are just too relaxed. And when I'm going around the room getting people what people have written down, I'm doing it lickety split so that the energy level is, is high. And, and so that's probably more important even uh, than, than worrying about people's time is to just make this as, as exciting and engaging an, ex- an exercise as we can. Yeah, because if you think last year, Tim, of during complex problem solving, mm-hmm. nothing I had you guys do in class ever goes for more than 20 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, years of, you know, situated learning education, uh, years of competence learning within 
Defence Forces have all found the same thing, that people have about a 20-minute window before you lose the buzz and you lose real interest and you go back to thinking about what's consuming you. So listeners, if you're already starting to feel yourself uh, <laughs> disconnect, maybe pause Take and come back Take a pause and later. come back later. <laughs> <laughs> a great thing with podcasting, you can go and get that coffee, you can go for that walk, you can pat the cat, whatever you need to do. Out of the pre-mortem, Gary, was this sort of where you started seeing people have the most interesting insights when you destabilise how they're thinking? So when you expose them to the pre-mortem, go, okay, it's failed. Why? You know, do you see like light bulb moments? Again, being blind, I just hear the class go silent and then a few people start to giggle. And I go, okay, that's good. It's got them. They're quiet and then they're giggling. It's just freed their brains. Yeah, do you think in a sense right. pre-mortem is a way to- there's a, real mindset, there's a real mindset shift from trying to ward off potential problems to the adventure of, of, of just the playfulness of, of, of the concept, uh, let, letting your, your imagination run wild. I'll give you an example of a pre, uh, the first time we ever did a pre-mortem outside our company with, with a sponsor. We had just started a very large project, a large for us project uh, for the Air Force to build a system. And our sponsor wanted us to run it, even though we didn't have the technological sophistication. We had those experts on our team, but the sponsor wanted us because sponsor wanted to make sure that what was built could be useful for people out in the field and, and wasn't just technologically sophisticated, but was going to go on a shelf someplace. So we uh and this was and we said we're going to do a pre-mortem and the sponsor said absolutely not i don't want to i don't want to diminish confidence and we said trust us so grudgingly he agreed so we we had the planning meeting and then at the very end we said now we're going to spend 20 minutes on a pre-mortem and um, we went through the exercise i described and one young captain he had not said a word during the entire meeting and it was time for him to offer what he had at the top of, of, of his list. And this, by the way, was a system to be used to, to help people allocate various kinds of weapons in a theater of war, precision-guided munitions, and to do the, the right kind of targeting. And we, we had a very sophisticated algorithm we were, that, that had been developed by one of our team members that we thought was going to do the trick. And this young captain, it was his term. He hadn't, hadn't said a word. And he said, these algorithms that are, are really impressive, they run on a supercomputer and it takes a couple of days to get an answer. And you're talking about a system that you want to use in the field in Iraq, for example. And the person operating it is a history major from Northwestern University, and he's in the reserves. And he's working on, in those days, it was like a, an IB, a, a 486 machine. And he said, this algorithm is never going to work on that machine. And there was silence in the room. And everyone realized that the plan that we had been discussing was critically flawed. And then somebody else said, you know, I have a back of the envelope approach that I've been playing around with. It's not as powerful as the algorithm that runs on the supercomputer. It's about maybe 80% as powerful as that. 
but this strategy that I have would run on a 486 machine. And all of a sudden, we were back in business. And and that sponsor all of a sudden became an advocate for a pre-mortem because without a pre-mortem, the project would have been a total disaster. Yeah, they would have built this thing for a you know, supercomputer that looked perfect on paper, but never could have been applied. Yeah. And, and this young captain who had been very, uh, very careful, very quiet, when he was given the chance to, to speak what, what was on his mind, he was able to articulate it. So a pre-mortem is a way... It's a way of surfacing um, uh, disquieting ideas and, and, and possible problems. But it's also a way of changing the culture of the team and saying, we value candor here. We, we're, we have a team where people can say unpopular things and not worry about retribution. And the great thing, too, is you know, so often you know, we don't want any more negativity in our day. So to frame, this is not negativity, this is finding a problem now, so it's not a problem later. It's the opposite of negativity. And giving people that freedom is just such a powerful thing to do. You know, I've sat in you know, rooms with senior public servants where you know, they want to give their junior people freedom, but they don't have a tool to explain to those junior people that yeah, I really mean that I want to give you this freedom. It's not to set you up and then call you negative. It, it's to solve the problems early yeah, so that we all win later. Mm-hmm. Now, there are, people, there are people on a team who just don't like the approach that, that, that you're taking at all. And so they're, 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 they are going to create negative energy and they're easily handled. When, when I have people like that on a team, I'll say, you have a lot of skepticism and no plan is perfect. And if we wait for a perfect plan, we'll never, we'll never even get started. So this is the direction we're taking. I know you're skeptical. I want you to hold on to that skepticism because it's genuine skepticism. You're not acting like a devil's advocate. You really do think this that we're getting in trouble. And I want you to come to me as you see evidence so, so we can look at it together. But I, we're going ahead with this plan, even though you think it's not going to work. Mm. So we're not stopping simply because y- y- you've expressed some skepticism. I'm going to use your skepticism but I won't be. Uh, I, 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 I won't be blocked by it. Yeah, it's a way to, to you know, put momentum back into people who otherwise are going to retard the process. You know, mm-hmm. teaching in a university at the moment that you know uses the word innovation in every second sentence, <laughs> and they they keep talking about what they want, but not necessarily how to get there. So in the same way that a pre mortem is a way to get people to move forward. It seems to me that your book, Seeing What Others Don't, your book on insight, is very much designed to have the same effect. We all want the outcomes that insight will get us. But if we don't prime the world for insight the way that pre-mortem primes a team to look more carefully at what could go wrong, we can't possibly get there. So getting back to the causes of things rather than fixating on the effects was insight, again, something you you ran into like this, the wonderful description in your book of you know, having the arrows on the slide where you know, increased performance requires you know, errors go down, insight goes up, and someone finally in an audience go, well, okay, Gary, tell us how that works. 
Yeah, so once again, you got there right. by just going, well, I've got a question. And the world said, well, all right, we've got about 100 questions of you, Gary, off you go. Go write the book. <laughs> right. That was, again, that, that was certainly not planned. I had this great diagram. I still love it. It says to improve performance, you need to do two things, at least in this scheme. And there's a down arrow, which is what you want to reduce, and an up arrow, which is what you want to increase. So the down arrow, you want to reduce errors. Everybody would agree with that. And the up arrow, what you want to increase, you want to increase insights and discoveries and expertise. And you you need to do both of those. You can't ignore errors. Reducing errors can't be the whole sum of your activity. You don't want to go home at the end of the day and tell people, I had a great day. I didn't make any mistakes today. I mean, that's not a really productive day. The trouble is most organizations focus primarily, if not entirely, on the down arrow. Here's ways of reducing errors. And you think of Six Sigma and other kinds of approaches that are all about reducing errors and very little uh, consideration for what could be done to increase insights. And so it really becomes imbalanced in an organization and the organization suffers as a result. So that's the diagram I present. And that's when I was getting the questions, okay, we get it. Um, Our organizations are all about the down arrow. What can you tell us about insight? And I didn't have the first idea. And that's when I started the project to try to uh, uh, determine where insights come from. So it was, it wasn't like part of a pre-imagined plan. I'm going to move to the next cognitive process of insight. It was just being tired of, of feeling like an idiot in front of an audience. Yeah, and wanting just to not knowing what you it. could possibly tell them. Because normally when, uh, you know, I sort of teach the students about this in the complex problem solving course, I usually start, you know, with Wagner Dodge and the man gulch fire. Because just, right. you know, a photo of him as the all-American dude, you know, knowing that people are leaping out of planes in the late 40s to fight fires, which just seems amazing, or would have been then and still is now. Um, and mm-hmm. just that idea of, okay, this fire's going to get me, I'm going to turn my back to the fire, light the grass in front of me, get rid of the fuel and jump in the ash. So creative desperation is such a wonderful way to get people to think about insight because immediately the story sticks, the character sticks, and you know that if they remember nothing else about gaining insight, they'll remember creative desperation. And they make jokes for the rest of semester about, oh, it's time to start working on my essay. I better look for a way to find some creative desperation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that story too. I mean, it's just an astonishing story that uh, he didn't – say, I'm, I'm going to, you know, go into my study and sort of cogitate what I can do. He's got a fire that's about to burn him to death in another minute. <laughs> and uh, and he just invented this notion of lighting the, the, the grass in front of him yeah. so that he removed the fuel and created an escape fire. And he just he, there was nothing else he could think of, and and it worked. He saved his life. Yeah, you know, the fascinating thing is, I, I did some work with the country fire service here in South Australia, who are like our volunteers and semi full time people who fight fires in the bush, and they all knew what an escape fire was, but they didn't know the story of you know who created it, and they said knowing the story and being able to go away and get a photo of him, and then when they were teaching recruits after that 
having the face. So the power of a good story, you know, the power of having a good central character to help teach some of this stuff, where the ideas are big and complicated. So you know, I've had a few classes where I've you know, used your Daniel Boone idea of when he's trying to get his daughter back after she's been you know, kidnapped. And here he is changing strategy to get insight in a different way as he's working out how to track these people and how to get ahead of them. And you can't necessarily just go, well, learn all these processes and you'll eventually be able to apply them. But if they could remember a cool story about a person and it turns out it was real, there's a better chance that they're going to ponder on it and want to gain that insight. Have you found that you know, that part of you know, your book is what's really stuck with people? They've remembered the stories about the people and that's what's given them the, the reason to cogitate and reflect on the underlying concepts? Very much so. When, when I, I've written several books now. I never expected to write any, so I'm sort of surprised that, that I've done this, these books. And when I'm plotting out a, uh, a book, I, I, I'm determining what each chapter is going to cover. And I also have a list of stories, and I'm trying to figure out where the stories are going to be told because I know the stories are probably going to be remembered more than any of the assertions or any of the, the models that I described. That's the power of storytelling. And in my first book, Sources of Power, I, I have devoted a whole chapter to the, the, the power of stories because they, they are enormously powerful. Yeah, like I'm starting to teach a master subject on strategic cultures on Friday. And the first video I'll run is an interview with Marcus Luttrell uh, the week after he's got his silver star and left the US Navy having you know, been the only SEAL to survive Operation Red Wing, you know, the thing that Lone Survivor got made after the movie. And it's a micro version of strategic culture. SEAL strategic culture is we don't quit. As a consequence of that mindset, they made a series of tactical decisions that ended in a, a terrible day. And it gets the idea across in an instant of 50 years of theory, having this 20-something guy who's recovered from major injuries just ended the first part of his life, staying the second part, carrying all this grief and trauma and honour and this weight of sacrifice. And suddenly you can have a room full of master's students who know nothing about security studies, who one hour in are going, okay, I care and I want to learn. And it's just such a powerful thing when the story becomes the way to help them begin to understand the theory and begin to have their own insight of why learning these ideas matters. Right. So let me give you a, a related idea to that is a, a friend and colleague, John Schmidt, who is a former Marine. And he was the, the person who popularized tactical decision games in the Marines, which are a scenario-based approach to building decision-making skills. And he arranged to publish a tactical decision game it was sort of a written scenario, a tough situation. And then at a certain point you say, this happened and something unexpected has just happened. And a lot of times the plan has fallen apart and you have to do something to uh, to react. And that's the point of the tactical decision game. How are you gonna, going to handle that, that, that moment of truth? And John, after publishing one a month in the Marine Corps Gazette for about four years, he wondered, am I having any effect 
on the Marines. And so he went back to the very first tactical decision game that he ran, and he looked at all the answers that had been sent in. And it was a situation where there was a plan, you were sent out with a mission, you know, just like you described with the SEALs, the Marine culture at the time, if you're given a mission, you carry it out. That's your job. People can depend on you to carry it out. That's the culture. And most, many, if not most of the tactical decision games John used, the situation was one where the original mission had become overtaken by events. And if you continue to carry it out, like with this, with the, with the SEALs, it, it, it wasn't going to end well. And you needed to be resilient and adaptive rather than dogged and determined. And in the very first one that he ran, John uh, estimated that about half the people stuck to the original plan, even though it didn't make sense. And the other half realized that there was something better that they could do. And then four years later, John ran the same tactical decision game. He disguised it. He changed the terrain. He changed some minor surface details. But the dynamic was the same, just to see what would happen. And this time, essentially 100% of the people adapted. Nobody stuck to the original plan. Now, John never said to anybody, I want to change the culture of the Marine Corps. He never said to any, he never wrote a, a preface to any of his tactical decision games. Here's what I'm trying to teach you. But each tactical decision game was sort of like a story. It was an experience that engaged people. And over the course of years, he had an, an amazing uh, impact on the culture of the Marine Corps. What time frame was he publishing them over, Gary? Wow. I'm guessing this was in the 80s. Okay, because my curiosity was sort of when uh, General Krulak, as commandant, wrote the article you know, about being a strategic corporal and you know the idea of the three-block war where you would go from you know peacekeeping to sort of, you know, policing to combat, you know, in three blocks over three hours. That's early 90s. And I thought, wow, if something like that was coming out from command and your friend John was doing this stuff at a similar time, it'd be this wonderful thing of you've got a voice saying, I will support change, as well as people putting the tools in front of you simultaneously. And with that combination, that's when you've got that combination of, you know, brilliant ideas seeping in and genuine support from on top to change, that's when you really see that an organization can change and genuinely become innovative. And yet trying to get that combination at the same time seems to sadly be such a rare thing. I, I agree. It's, it's, it's very hard. This was, this was a, a fortunate convergence. Yeah. Once again, no one planned it. It was just really lucky that these things lined up. Right. It was really lucky, except the people putting these pieces together were impressive individuals. And so when you, when you have enough, enough of that individual initiative and foresight and vision, it should not be that surprising that you get these happy accidents and these happy convergences. Was one of the things you say in the, the sort of latter parts of seeing what others don't, the real problem in a lot of organizations is a lack of willpower. They have all the pieces, but they don't have the will to follow through and keep following through. And that's really when all these things come together is what you normally see is a bunch of people in different positions with a similar level of willpower 
to achieve a positive change? I think it, unfortunately, it runs deeper than willpower. I think this, this was one of the discouraging parts of my, my project on Insight, where I just assumed, organiza- I took organizations at their word. I assumed that when they said they wanted innovation, they really did want in- innovation. And in fact, my observations of organizations is that they don't really want innovation. In many ways, they're afraid of innovation because if I'm in an organization, I'm, an, I'm a manager, I'm trying to do, uh, con, uh, carry out a task, I've got certain resources, I've got a certain schedule, I want to get everything done and, 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 and have an, an effective project. And you come up with some insights. Well, insights are disruptive by definition. So now it's, it's, it's you know, you're, you're messing up my plan. And, and people also distrust creativity because they know that creativity has a certain risk of, 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 uh, of being misplaced. And so I'm, you're asking me to take risks and to alter my plan. And I'm very uncomfortable with that. I, to have effective management, I want predictability and insights dis, uh, disrupt that kind of predictability. I want to have a project where there are zero errors because the, the sad fact is if, um, if there's errors and mistakes, they're visible and I'm going to get blamed. On the other hand, if we fail to make discoveries, we fail to have insights, nobody will know. So the reward equation always favors trying to, to reduce errors. And we've got another problem. If I take your insight seriously, it's going to mean more work. I've got to change my, I've got to change my plan. I've got to think what are the implications? How do I change the roles people are? Yeah, we have are, to revise are, the are system. We may have to revise personnel, resource allocation. Suddenly we have I to mean, keep you're, evolving. You're making my life a horror. By, by your insight. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not enthusiastic. I'm sorry. Yeah, which suddenly makes, you know, why each time I've re- read your insight book, I keep coming back to creative desperation because in the main, people are going to have to be desperate before they accept creativity. <laughs> Too often, uh, that's the case, yes. I worked with one company that believed that they were an innovative organization because at their beginning, they had a very innovative idea and it had made them very successful. But then, because they were so afraid of making mistakes, they had a very, very careful vetting procedure for new ideas. And anytime an idea had any possible problem that could go wrong, they would kill the idea, they wouldn't go forward. And and somebody, uh, actually it was the chief innovation officer of the company told me that, in the past seven years, they had had maybe 50 ideas that might have allowed them to move forward, and they did not fund a single one. Yeah. Wow. That's a problem of scale, though, isn't it? Because this happens you know, in big companies. It happens in, in, for instance, large-scale operations like wars and things when imminent destruction, that's when you start to trust the creativity and the insight. It seems to be in the smaller scale operations that people are much more open to that insight in the first place. Uh, Small often means new. Yeah. Again, why do people walk away from their corporate careers or why do they walk away from universities 
and form tiny groups and tiny companies to have the freedom to actually do what they weren't allowed to do. Mm. You know, it appears to me that the consequence of most organisations not dealing well with insight and innovation is those who want to do insight and innovation walk off and do their own thing with a group of like-minded right. people who are willing to you know ride the surfboard on the very big wave. Mm. Yeah, take the risk of hitting the rocks. So there, so there needs to be a third kind of organisational tool that you can apply to much larger operations. Is that what we're kind of seeing as a necessity or just more people need to be open-minded? Or do we just accept the things like the GFC of whole industries hitting the wall because they refuse to have insights is going to be our normal? Well, that's a post, that's a pre-mortem, mortem, isn't it, right? It's... <laughs> The, the next GFC is because we can't. We, we didn't learn. We didn't. We don't have insight. We or we we don't listen to insight. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll get a new economic system when the one we have properly breaks. What's well, a terrible thing? I I've stopped saying to undergrads because undergrads are more nervous than they used to be, mm. and that is the system will only get better once it's broken. <laughs> because we don't fix things until they're broken, because otherwise, again, it's too disruptive, and that's a terrible reality when we're demanding of students, you will be innovative. You will learn the foundations to be an innovator. But by the way, don't do it here. (laughs) What a wonderful hypocrisy. Let me me tell you about my brother, Mitchell. I have three brothers and Mitchell is a clinical psychologist. And once I was talking to him and I said, so Mitchell, what do you do when when a, a client comes to you and the client is totally stressed out with with anxiety and uh, over overcome by these waves of anxiety, uh, what do you do to try to calm the patient down and reduce the anxiety? And Mitchell says, "I don't want to reduce the anxiety. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> I know that that people can stay in a highly anxious state for more than what ten days, maybe two weeks at the most, and and then the they become fatigued. That means I've got two weeks." to change them because while they're in, in, in the grip of this anxiety, that's when they're open to yeah. making dramatic changes and they're desperate enough to try things that ordinarily they would never even consider. Yeah, because once they crash, they'll go, okay, I have no power, I can't do anything, curl up in a ball mm. and accept right. what else happens. <laughs> You've got to take the moment of, of terror almost and use that as the foundation. Sorry, Tim. Oh, it's all right. Surely that anxiety has some diagnostic power as well. It tells you what's wrong, what you need to fix. Is what tells idea. you something's wrong, not what's wrong. Well. Necessarily. Yes. That's where, you know, again, Wagner Dodge knew he was going to burn, mm. but he didn't know how to stop from burning. He was like his brand found a way. And he was the only one of the smoke jumpers on that day mm-hmm. who did. Mm-hmm. You know, the only other two who survived were at the top of the, the gulch and near the rocks. Right. They, they managed to escape. And Wagner, jo- Wagner Dodge yelled to the others, follow me. I mean, he had figured out something. And because it was so innovative, n- nobody knew what grasp he was it. talking about. And the two who managed to escape, who heard him say that, later they said, we assumed he had just gone crazy. Yeah, he knew he was going to burn and he was just, I don't know, trying to do something. Didn't make sense anymore. Yeah. <laughs> So the, the thing is here, we're asking the world to have insight when it needs to be under massive pressure to do it and under massive pressure. There's no guarantee that you would understand what you'd thought up or that you'll be able to convince anyone else. <laughs> so it's a lot of work to make this work. 
which is why books like Seeing What Others Don't is so important. Because if you don't prime yourself to know that when something crazy pops in your head, go, hang on, maybe that's not crazy. Maybe that's powerful. You have to decide to support other people in their insights, in their new awarenesses, that if someone believes them, they're more likely to follow through and develop it. And two people have more so, influence than one. So let me let me respond to that because that suggests a better way forward, that we, we don't have to just wait for crises to allow people to disinhibit and to be open to, uh, to, to new desperate ideas. What we can do is try to prepare ourselves to appreciate insights. And even if they're not, especially if they're not our insights, but to listen to them appreciatively rather than critically and skeptically, rather than, you know, uh, with, with a mindset, uh, I'm going to shoot it down because it's somebody else's idea. If we can condition ourselves to watch our own insights and to savor our own insights and instead of just spending all of our time kicking ourselves for the mistakes we've made. Because we, we always have plenty of insights we make each day, but we don't notice them. Whereas the, the mistakes, the blunders, uh, the stupidities, those consume us and, and fill us with regret. And if we can change that equation even a little, for ourselves to notice our insights and to listen appreciatively to other people's insights, maybe that would be another way forward. Yeah, and that's the most balanced way because it's that thing of be kinder to yourself and listen to other people carefully, which those two things are good advice for <laughs> any situation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a nice point to have got after the dismal bit. Bad ideas, so we, we, don't, we don't want to immediately praise every new idea. We, we don't want to give up our critical uh, faculty, but we just want to listen appreciatively and say, hmm, what does this mean? Is this, this isn't something I expected. What, what might the implications be? Let, let, me, let me imagine it. Let's, let's use our, creative, our curiosity, like the curiosity we use in the pre-mortem to see why the plan failed. Let's use that, the same power of curiosity to see how this idea could could blossom. And that's very much the power of the word curiosity is, once again, you know, creativity is likely to come from curiosity. Let's go back to the cause, not the effect. You know, if we want innovation, we need insight. If we want creativity, we need curiosity. So if we can just get people to think about being you know, curious, that's a good primer for lots of other things. Mm-hmm. Very much. Well, that seems a very, very positive place to start coming towards an end we've taken up well over an hour of your time gary is there anything you wish we'd asked you is there a question we've missed there was one thing i was hoping you would ask about (laughs) after i identified this recognitional decision making strategy in the mid 80s for the next few decades i wondered is there a way to help people build decision skills And I never came up with anything that I was really satisfied with until about five years ago when I heard about a method from a friend of mine who's a a firefighter, New York Fire Department. He's a retired uh, battalion chief. And it's a method that we're calling shadow box, which is a way to try to help people 
build expertise more quickly. And it's built around stories. It's built around incidents. And it's a way of getting people to see the world through the eyes of experts without having to have the expert there in the training situation. And you run people through a scenario, a challenging scenario, and you stop it at certain points. These are the decision points. And you say, at this point, maybe here's four options about what you could do. Rank order them from best to worst and write down your reason. And then you continue the, the scenario, and then you might stop it again, another decision point. Here's three goals that you might be pursuing. Rank order them from most important to least important and write down why. And then you can have the scenario go on for a while, and you stop it again, and decision point three. Here, here are five different pieces of information you could pursue. Rank order the importance and write down why. And that's what people do. They go through this scenario. and But we've also had a small group of maybe three to five experts go through the same scenario. They've done their own ranking. They've written down their own reason. And we've compiled, combined their ranking and synthesized their reasons. So when you tell me what your rankings are, I can show you what were the rankings that the experts had. And when you tell me here are... Here, here is the rationale that I had. We can I can show you, here's what the experts were seeing in the same scenario. They saw the same thing you did, but they saw things that you missed. They came up with inferences that you hadn't imagined. They made connections you hadn't thought of. And so this is a way to have people see the world through the eyes of experts without the experts being there. And we've been using this for about five years now. And it's one of the things I'm, I'm most excited about right now. Yeah, it sounds like you know, it's taking the things we all loved as kids of choose your own adventure, putting right. it with context, allowing right. you to double down on the rate at which you can learn without having to shadow someone for 10 years. Right. You know, we can put you in exactly. the simulation so that maybe you only have to shadow someone for a few years to genuinely be useful in the real world. Mm-hmm. What a great shortcut. Right. Mm. It's not Thank you. It's it's not expedient like a life hack. It's actually just efficient. Do, yeah, do the work in prep to get more out of doing the real work when you're not in the simulation. Mm. Mm. Well, maybe we can Very talk much. to you, Gary, about that perhaps more. Is in there going to be a time. book, Gary? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I've thought about it, but at the moment, I'm not in the book writing business. I, <laughs> five is enough. <laughs> okay. Well, if you ever want to come back and talk about just about that, we'd be more than happy to learn lots. Mm. And thank you, thank you, thank you very much for filling in so many gaps in you know what we've read and what I taught Tim in class and. Mm-hmm just generally how enthusiastic we were about talking to you today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I have to say I've genuinely enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Gary. Okay. All right. Thanks, Gary. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.